You may be seated. Oh, so good. So if you are new uh, this morning to Trinity, my name's Tim Merwin. I also am one of the pastor elders here. And we are preaching through this little letter called Titus. So uh, if, you, if you haven't opened your Bible, please open your Bible and be there. Be able to put your finger on the page, um, if you will. It's a, it is a privilege to preach God's Word. Um, last week, I was sitting right there. It was a privilege to have the Word preached to me. So, so for all of us this morning, we, we get to do something. I get to preach God's Word. You get to hear God's Word preached You haven't come to hear me. You haven't come to hear my opinions. You haven't come to hear my thoughts. You want the word of God. And so like like they say in in Ezra, bring us the book, right? Like we're here this morning, bring us the book. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. A few thoughts regarding uh, the title this morning and, and what we're seeking to build at Trinity. I want to thank you, church. It is a rich um, privilege to have opportunities to speak in different places. My favorite place to preach is at home. I love preaching here. I have home field advantage when I preach here. I absolutely love it. And it's because of your heart towards the word. Um, not everybody gets to love it. And a lot of that has to do with the hearer and how the hearer responds to the word. So I just want to thank you, church. Thank you for leaning into God's word. Thank you for loving God's word. I pray that the Lord would encourage and stir our hearts to more and more love God's word. Uh, Second thought, we want to preach out of God's word. Okay, so when I say that, The fancy word, and sometimes we explain it a bit, but it's expository preaching is what we seek to do here, which means, simple way to put that, the point of the sermon is the point of the text. Like, we're not trying to do some tricky thing here. Actually, at the end of the sermon, our heart would be that you would say, oh yeah, I I could see that. That's right there on the page. Like that's, that would be our heart. That would be our heart's desire, that we would all be good students of the word of God, that all of us would be going, oh yeah, right there, the grace of God, all right? A grace training. You're gonna be able to take your finger, put it on the page and go, he got that right there. Uh, and Jesus waiting, all right? That's right there on the page, a gospel-driven community, all right? So that's what we're after this morning and Because that's what we're after. It's a tall task. It's actually uh, such a tall task, no human can accomplish it. We need the help of the Spirit of God to accomplish that. So let's pause and pray. Father God, we come to you. We turn to you. We we set aside these next moments uh, for the preaching of your word. And we ask for your help. I ask for your help as the preacher. And we ask for your help, all of us, as hearers, Lord God. Uh, The only way that I might uh, preach effectively and the only way all of us might hear effectively is by your spirit. So we, 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 we pause, we stop, and we say, God, we need you in this task of preaching and hearing your word preached. So come, Holy Spirit, meet with us over these next moments, Lord. 
that you might land upon our hearts in such a way that we would be changed, Lord. That you would, you would move the needle in our desire to worship you, in our understanding of grace, in our, in our excitement about the blessed hope that one day our Savior will return. Lord God, would you help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, uh, as Bobby has already read the text, we begin in verse 9, depending on your translation, uh, it's bond servants are to be submissive or slaves are to be submissive uh, to, uh, uh, sorry, to their masters. Um, we're going to unpack that quite a bit. Uh, the word there is in the original language is doulos. And just like previous groups of people um, in the household have been encouraged by Paul through the Spirit of God um, to, to lean in. Just, just like in the previous weeks, right? We go back to week one. We're saying, okay, this, this passage addresses the older man. What do we say? All the younger men need to lean in. All of us need to lean into the text because there's things. Well, we read it this morning already in the catechism. All scripture, all of it, all of it, this text right here, slaves, bondservants, the word doulos, um, it speaks to all of us this morning. Okay, so lean into the text. Though you're not a slave, and yet since all of Scripture is profitable, there's things in these verses that we need to hear and apply. Okay, so please don't check out. Please lean in. What we need to know is that Paul is not endorsing slavery here. Okay, he was speaking to a cultural reality He's not making a, 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 a slavery statement. He is making a gospel statement. All right, you miss that and you miss the whole point. If you're looking for a statement on slavery from Paul this morning, you're not, you're not going to find it. But if you're looking for a statement on the gospel this morning, as it relates to the slave, you will find that this morning. Communion just fell to the ground. Okay, we will be taking communion later. You haven't got your elements, please, while I'm preaching, feel free to get up and grab them. Okay, so if you're looking for a slavery statement, you will miss the point of the text. If you're looking for a gospel point, uh, statement, you will see the point of the text. The reality is, slavery was a cultural reality in the Roman Empire, in Roman life. Some slaves were Christians. They were Christians living in a Cretan culture, as we've talked about in previous weeks. And so Paul writes to Titus so that he might instruct the slave on how he or she is to live. Now, what's significant here is that the slave is included with all the others in the household instructions, right? So put the context together. What has Paul been doing? He's been addressing the older man, the younger man, the older woman, the younger woman. That's the household, as well as the slave was a part of the household. And so uh, he doesn't do an end around them. He doesn't pretend like they don't exist. He actually includes them. And there's, there's, there's aspects of that that's really beautiful. Because life in the gospel is to filter down into every area of life. We've been saying that for weeks, 
It needs to filter down as you drive to work. It needs to filter into your homeschool. It needs to filter into your public school. It needs to filter into all aspects of life. It needs to filter into when the, when the tire goes flat. It needs to filter into when you're in the doctor's office and he says, you have cancer. We want doctrine to function in our lives. That's the point of doctrine. Well, so true as well for the first century slave. The gospel is to function in his or her life. And that's what Paul's getting done here. While living under a master, they were to be aware, the slave was to be aware that they were living under another master. A master who was not a cruel taskmaster, but a master who had redeemed them, ransomed them adopted them, brought them into the family of God, sons and daughters of the living God, co-heirs with Christ. You belong, same is true for all of us this morning who are followers of Jesus Christ, you belong to a greater master. Your master is not a cruel taskmaster, quite the opposite. He came, Mark tells us, not to be served, but to serve. By giving his life as a ransom for many. He has showered you in his love. He has covered you in his grace. He has clothed you in his righteousness. In Christ, your life, Paul says to the Corinthians, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so the gospel operates, hear me, in so many ways it operates in slave language. Did you know that? Redemption, bought with a price, ransomed. You were once a slave to sin. We sang a number of songs about our freedom now in Christ. It's a wonderful weekend. It's July 4th. We're celebrating our independence as a country. Do you understand that's pretty, that, that pales in comparison to the freedom you have in Christ Jesus? Like if that's your big, if that's your big Independence Day, July 4th, if that's the, the big hurrah, uh, God bless you. There is a far bigger hurrah <laughs> found in God's word in that the reality is all of us who are followers of Christ, you were once a slave to your sin and Christ came and he redeemed you and he has set you free. You now belong to him. He's your master. And he did that. We'll be celebrating. This represents his blood. He did that through his blood. Now here's what's tricky. We tend to read our Bibles through the American experience. All right? We put on our American glasses. And then we read our Bible through that. Through that lens. And it's not helpful. Uh, as I say the word slave, what? I've probably said it more times in the past 10 minutes than I have in 10 years from this pulpit. As I say that word slave, all of us cringe as we should. It's cringeworthy. And while some would take Paul here and not do context and would simply just say he's 
pro-slavery. Paul is not endorsing slavery. He's not pro-slavery. Rather, he is pro-gospel. That the gospel, again, is to filter down into every category of life, wherever, whatever your state in the household might be, young or old, male or female, slave or free. The gospel speaks to your role and drives our actions. And so it would have actually been negligent of Paul to not address the slave at this time Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire would have had in excess of a third of the population would be slave. A slave in Cretan culture, um, well, in Cretan culture, the living conditions could be miserable, but not always. Some slaves owned slaves owned businesses. Some held high positions in government. We can even just quickly think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He held a high position, and yet he was a slave. A slave lived as part of the master's household. Also, a slave, first century slave, was rarely a permanent slave. It usually ended around the age of 30. I'm not condoning any of this. I'm just trying to help us have some context to what Paul is speaking to in the context that he writes to. It was a cultural reality that he spoke to. In the Roman Empire, slavery was not based on race. Anyone could end up a slave. And there are three common ways that you might find yourself there. One, you were captured in, in, in war. You were, ca- you were a prisoner of war. You would... Now, be taken into the Roman Empire, you would be a slave. Um, and the alternative to that, you, you'd be grateful <laughs> because the alternative would be you'd be killed. Secondly, as a child, you might become a slave simply because you were abandoned by your parents because your parents were completely destitute. And, 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 and literally, to, to such a degree that it, you, would, you would view it, it's better for my child to be put into the slave trade because their prospect is is simply death. Um, You yourself could be so destitute, you would have such debt that you couldn't repay your debts. You are completely unable to repay. You would enter yourself into the slave trade. And so destitute, poverty uh, could be a reason why you would end up in the slave trade. And then thirdly, you, you were simply born into so your mother had you while she was a slave. You, too, would be a slave. Those are the three, three ways. It's, it's, it's not the American experience. Um, but I want you to consider those three ways with me for a moment as it relates to the gospel. You were a captured prisoner of war. Meaning you were, you were captive. You were chained to sin and death. And Christ came. Your master was Satan. Christ came. And he died and he set you free. Your master is Jesus Christ. Two, you fell into slavery because you were destitute. Because you had debts you could not pay. Christ came and he fully paid your debt on the cross. We'll be celebrating that in communion. Three, you were born into slavery. 
Friends, that's total depravity. You were born into slavery. Christ, 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 Christ came and he paid your debt and he set you free. You are no longer a slave to sin and death. You, you literally, in, in, in a good sense of the word, you're a slave to Christ. You're a bondservant to Christ who has set you free. He's your master. 1 Peter 1.18 puts it like this, knowing that you were ransomed, so that, that, that purchase from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, that's not what ransomed you, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now here in verses 9 and 10, Paul's point is that the slaves are to live in such a way that makes the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. He's going to say it's going to be adorned, something that's attractive, and that's applicable, applicable for all of us. How amazing is it that the slave in this day, the lowly, the downtrodden, is being entrusted with the very message of the gospel? Because your gospel ministry, all of us, is never based on your status in this world. Your gospel ministry is always based on your status before God. Big difference. Big difference. So Titus 2.9 says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This, this, this in our day... This is the employee. This is how do I go to work? This is the student. How do I go to the university? This is the, this is the teenager. How do I live under mom and dad? You might not be, hopefully, at work, school, home, under a cruel taskmaster, but you might have an unfair boss. You might be in challenging circumstances and situations that you just go, this just isn't right. Uh, you might not understand your parents at times. You, you might be under a teacher who, who has it out for you. In other words, here in the text, here in our lives, he or she is to live in such a way to do credit in those difficult circumstances and adorn the word of God because there's an opportunity to reach those that we serve. How beautiful is it? that everyone in the household is included in the exhortation of Titus chapter 2. Everyone is given gospel responsibilities to build the community of God. Paul didn't end the, end the letter in chapter 1 with the elders getting to the end of that that list, those qualifications and those, those things of their character. And he gets to the end and he says, okay, now all the elders, you go do all that. No, actually, he turns from there and he begins to give, here's the household of faith, if you will. Here's how all of us um, contribute and play into the building of the community, the people of God. 
So this slave was to live among the Cretans in such a way that a master and the master's family was observing this slave and observing this, this guy, this gal's life is different. It's submitted. It's well-pleasing. It's not talking back. It's not pilfering. But it's demonstrating this faithfulness so that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. Verse 10. And can I say to us, is there anything more needed today in the church 2023? This is the common denominator between, in all these verses previously, these weeks that we've been preaching, chapter 2. The common denominator, the young and the old, the male and the female, the slave and the free, all of us believers are not to be any sort of stumbling block to the lost and dying world that, don't, that does not know Jesus. It's a cry, should be our response. Make my life attractive to your word. Let it be adorned in such a way that rather than bringing reproach to the word, it's attractive to your word. Now, as I said before, you're not a slave, and yet we all have these bosses, we all have work responsibilities, we all have opportunities to submit ourselves to others, and it's for the sake of gospel ministry that we want to submit well. We're to be an employee that brings a godly character to work, a speech that honors God in actions and adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior in everything. You see, your job is more than a place of employment. Your job is more than a paycheck. Your job is more than putting food on the table. Your job is ministry. Your home is more than a place to retreat and eat and sleep. Your life, all that is your life, is gospel ministry. Number two. Motivator number one, the grace of God has appeared. It's verses 11 and 12. Now, here's the thing. These last three weeks, we've kind of just, just cracked the door open a little bit on verses 11 and 12. We've referred to it three weeks in a row. This is coming. This is coming. This is coming. Now's the time we're going to throw the door open, okay? So get ready. Let's go. Verse 11. Four. All that's previous. Now, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It begins, for the grace of God has appeared. Hear me. I learned this week something about this word appeared. It's used in Greek literature of the time as a term to describe the hero. Wow, the hero, the hero who comes and rescues the helpless out of danger. Grace has appeared. Grace is the hero of your life. You're not the hero of your life. Grace has been acted upon you. Praise be to God. The hero has appeared. Brothers and sisters, grace has appeared. If you're a follower of Christ, it's because grace appeared. Does that truth 
affect you? Does that mean anything to you? Does that move you? Does that stir your affections? Does that make you uh, want to get out your Bible? Grace has appeared in my life. Praise be to God. That, that means I'm no longer a slave to sin. Praise be to God. Get my Bible out. It, it's, it's grace has appeared. Praise be to God. We're singing about the freedom we have in Christ. And to be very honest with you, I don't know if that landed on any of our hearts as at all. Wow! wow. The grace of God has appeared to sinners Oh, we're so familiar. We're way overly familiar. Be freshly reminded as if this is the first day you stood in a worship service and you were completely undone. Grace, the hero, has appeared to slaves to sin and death. Praise be to our God. Help us, Lord. We're so comfortable with grace. Move our hearts and our affections. All oh, these truths should cause our hands to go in the air. Say, I can't sing, but you're singing anyways with everything that's in you. Because the soul has to respond to those truths. You were once a slave to sin. And Christ purchased you by his body and his blood. Let us not take this indifferently. Grace, true grace, as the Bible teaches, it is always a motivator. It's never a demotivator. Please hear me. It never demotivates your godliness. It always motivates godliness. And it, and it does so full of joy and gladness and celebration. If your obedience to the Lord is simply just duty or just done begrudgingly, there's, there's something wrong there. There's a misunderstanding in there somewhere of grace and the gospel and what he's accomplished. Obedience is not just a religious duty. Obedience is an absolute joy. It's what, what, what I often like to, and I already started this morning saying, it's what I get to do for God. Because the hero has appeared and he's come and he's rescued me. And now I get to live for him. And now I get to renounce the world. And the, thing that this, the things that this world says are so important. I get to renounce that. And I get to embrace Christ. Grace is a motivator. Some want to make grace to be about license to sin. They have a head knowledge of grace. It says this. It says, hey, I've got the grace of God. I can do what I want to do. I've heard Tim tell us many times, there's nothing I can do to add to my salvation. So why should I even try? I'm just going to live like the world. Why pursue godliness? Why reject sin? I'm saved by grace. It's pretty cool. Hear me. Grace was not provided for us to provoke cold complacency. Nor was it provided for us to just rotely 
religiously do our religious duty. It was provided for us to move us. To move us to a white, hot, passionate worship activity in all of life. How do we get there? Well, we spend time studying grace in his word. We mine it for all of its glories. See, grace is not a free pass to simply go do whatever sin is put before you. It's an invitation. It invites you to see the greater joy, the more beautiful treasure that is Christ. Grace invites you to a better party filled with a greater joy. I get to live for God. I get to do this activity for the Lord. I get to reject what this world tells me is so important and so valuable and so temporary. And for the greater joy, I get to do this activity. I get to show up on Sunday mornings. I get to worship God. I get to pull my Bible out. I get to memorize scripture. I get to pray. I get to seek the Lord. The greater joy, it's found in the motivation. Grace is training you. Grace is training you. Verse 12. Grace appeared, the hero appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us by saying to us, Christ died for that. Reject it. He died for that sin. Reject that sin. He saved me from that. He bore that sin on my behalf, on the cross. I reject that. Give me Christ. We can know enough about grace and the gospel to be dangerous to our own soul. You spit on the cross of Christ in your foolish view of grace. That it's some sort of license. Christ did not die to provide for you a license to sin. He did die to put a desire in your heart to honor and to glorify him with a godly pursuit. Some are more offended this morning that I said, you spit on the cross of Christ, then you are offended by your sin and just calling it grace. True understanding of grace drives us to our knees. It calls us to grow. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to renounce those things of this world that ensnare us. Grace calls us to worship. Calls us to rejoicing celebrations. I remind you in about three weeks' time, we start our series in the Psalms, the summer Psalms, Psalms of Presence. It's on purpose. We want to go from Titus right into Psalms of Presence. Grace is not God saying, Ah, oh, Tim, it's not a big deal. I'm providing grace for you. You just go, Tim, try a little harder. It's not what grace says in our hearts. You know what grace says? It says, what a savior. What a savior. A 
that he would die for a sinner like me. It stands in awe of who God is and what he's done. It's not, let me live this way so that I can earn grace. It's not, it's grace has been given to me. So as a response, let me live this way. It's verse 12. Grace is to be our trainer. It's not uh, training you to live like the world and then call that grace. Grace trains us to see we now have the liberty to no longer live for ourselves and live for sin. We've been purchased by Christ to now live for his glory, his honor. And so it says, deny godliness. Godliness. <laughs> yeah. Deny godlessness. Sorry. Hold the mic long enough and you just do stuff like that. Deny worldly lusts. Can we be clear? To deny godliness and to deny worldly lust is not some sort of legalism. We get all these words all jumbled up. I think because we're looking for excuses. We can be more concerned, well, I don't want to do that list because, wow, I, don't, I just don't want to be legalistic. And we can be less concerned about the honor and the glory of God. By all means, don't be legalistic. But legalism is not simply a list of do's and don'ts. Legalism is taking that list of do's and don'ts and making them the basis for your relationship with God. Making that list of do's and don'ts the reason for grace. And somehow through that list, I'm earning grace. You're not doing those things out of a desire to honor and glorify and worship God. You're doing those things out of, if it was possible, out of duty to some way manipulate God to gain God's favor, his blessing. That list of rules does not honor God. But another person can do that same list of things with a heart of worship. I want to worship you, Lord, because grace has been given renouncing and denying ungodliness to then worship the Lord. You see, the difference between legalism and worship in the heart is the heart behind what it is that you're doing. Two people can do the same thing. We, took, we received an offering earlier. To, you can have worship and you can have legalism in the same room. Friends, to say no to this world, to say no to its priorities, to live a godly life doesn't have to be legalism. Let grace be your motivator and thus do these things out of a desire to worship him. To pull out your Bible literally every day to read, to grow. If, if, if that's legalism, stop it. <laughs> stop doing that in a means to manipulate God or to earn favor before God or earn some sort of relationship out of God. But by all means, every day, take out your Bible because you've been provided a relationship with God. That's grace. Say no to this world. Romans 12, 9, nothing shouts grace quite like Romans 1 through 11. 11 chapters of grace upon grace upon grace. Yet what does it say? Chapter 12, verse 9. Cling to what is good, but hate what is evil. That's not legalism. <laughs> I 
That's a response, a worshipful response coming off of 11 chapters of the gospel of grace. I don't think Paul has now shifted in chapter 12 to teach us to be legalistic. Actually, chapter 12 begins with, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or by the grace of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is the good that you're clinging to? What is the evil that you're hating? Live before the face of God, the holy God, who rescued you from this world, and renounce it. Or perhaps is his salvation only for Sunday at 10 a.m.? Is it not to go with us to the theater? Is it not to go with us to the computer screen? Is it not to go with us to the streaming? Are we so comfortable with grace that we just go with whatever presents itself? Francis Schaeffer wrote, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. When we are surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly to be told that in the Christian life there is to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we are not really letting it speak to us. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of a real no is avoided as much as possible. Absolutes of any kind, ethical principles, everything must give in to the affluence and selfish personal peace. Of course, this environment of not saying no fits exactly into our natural disposition. Because since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. And this natural disposition fits in exactly with the environment which surrounds us in the 20th century. So renounce this. Say no to that. And yes, say life. Say yes to a life that is self-controlled, righteous, and godly in the present age. Grace calls you to this. It's teaching you towards this. Renounce it. And say yes to godliness. Let's move forward. Verse 13. Motivator number two while we wait. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. The appearing. The glory of our great God. Which is to say this grace pursuit of godliness is calling us for how long? Well, until Christ returns. That's for how long? And what a blessed hope the Christian has in Jesus. On that day, there will no longer be struggle with sin. There will no longer be a need to renounce this world. What, Paul, what, what is Paul saying here? He's setting their hope and ours, not on our present circumstances. He's writing to a slave or for instructions for slaves. Their hope is not in their present. Church, our hope is not in the present. You, have you seen the news? Do we think we'll turn on the news tomorrow and find a present hope at 6 o'clock? Your hope is not in this day. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in now. Your hope is coming. The blessed hope of Jesus Christ will return for his bride. And on that day, there'll no longer be a need to renounce this world. 
We need this. He says to the slave whose circumstances is probably filled with difficulty. And your circumstances, some of you, is filled with a different sort of difficulty. What do you do in the difficulty? Well, you have an eternal blessed hope. Glory has appeared by the grace of God through Christ. And glory will appear again in the person of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Amen. Verse 14, Jesus broke the chains of slavery and redeemed us. Do you hear the words? He's just piling them on. He cleansed us for his own possession, eager to do good works. Paul is doing chapter 2, verse 1 at this point. It's where we began. Three weeks ago, four weeks ago, do you you see what what he's getting done? He's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine there in chapter 1. And now he's doing that. What accords with sound doctrine? Well, this, men, women, young, old, slave-free, have a responsibility in gospel ministry to live lives in such a way that it is not a reproach to the very word of God, but rather it's something that's adorned to a lost and dying world. It's something that's attractive to those who are in darkness. Listen to how he piles on the words of our glorious salvation. He begins, verse 14, we are his. That's ultimately your identity. Your identity ultimately is not male, female, free, slave. Your ultimate identity is you're in Christ. You belong to him. That's who you are. And he gave himself to you that you might be that. Ransomed, meaning he paid the price. He purchased your salvation cleansed, meaning you are his, you are redeemed, you are cleansed. Our sins are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then he ends eager to do what is good. Eager, not just, uh, not just uh, burdened, but eager for the glory of God. Doing what is good doesn't make us his. Doing what is good is what the follower of Christ does because we are his. So let's pause. Worship team, you can join me. Let's take communion. I'm not done, but I'm done. It's a good place to be done. Please hold the communion elements and let's celebrate and worship what Christ has accomplished. This right here, hold it in your hands. This represents the body of Jesus Christ broken. Let me please ask you, if you're not a follower of Christ, please just set these elements to the side. It'd be inappropriate for you to celebrate what is not yours. If you're at a place where you say, I need Jesus, then by all means, as you sit there and as I talk, repent of your sins, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and join us in communion. But this little wafer, this little thing, this little nothing represents everything. The body of Jesus Christ. Let's take together. Let's hold the cup. This little cup seems like such a silly thing we do. We're told in Corinthians to do this in remembrance of me, of our Savior. His blood was shed that we might be here this morning, not out of rote religious duty, 
but out, out of complete sheer worship and joy. Your Savior's blood was poured out on your behalf, my behalf, that our sins might be made clean through his blood. Let's take the cup together. And stand with me. Let's respond appropriately in worship of our God. And then we'll see. I might have some closing thoughts for us.